This Q&A session will be very helpful for you if you're trying to walk faster, walk downhills, walk longer distances, if you're dealing with a bone spur, or if you're wondering if this information and all the tips I share are applicable if you have rheumatoid arthritis, this episode is for you. Here we go. You're listening to the Adventuring with Osteoarthritis podcast. Do you want to learn how to live an active life with osteoarthritis? Hear inspiring stories from others just like you and find out the best ways to naturally tackle joint pain. This podcast has you covered. There are so many possibilities that your healthcare provider may not be telling you about and surgery isn't always the answer. This podcast is not medical advice. Now, Here's your host, Doctor of Physical Therapy and Osteoarthritis Specialist, Alyssa Kewen. If we haven't met before, my name's Alyssa, so I'm a Doctor of Physical Therapy and I am an Osteoarthritis Specialist, so I exclusively see people that have Osteoarthritis treated hundreds of people so far and have been making waves in my Arthritis Adventure online program. So we have some exciting questions today, some different types of things, and we're primarily going to be focusing on movement and bone spurs. So we're going to be talking about how to train when walking, when needing to walk longer distances. So like on a trip, how to actually walk faster and some tips for bone spurs. And then also if all of these tips apply to rheumatoid arthritis. So those are the questions that we're going to go through today. If you do have questions, you can put them down in the comments and I will get to them afterwards. We are getting started with what type of movements or what type of strength do I need to do or do I need to have in order to walk faster? And I really like this question because I think a lot of times when people have osteoarthritis, when people are talking to you about it, healthcare professionals, family, friends, everything is slow down. Take your time, don't move fast, and it really becomes this phenomenon of just kind of slowing down everything. So that's why I really love this question about how to walk faster. Because once you prepare your joints, then you can absolutely learn to walk faster, potentially even run, go faster up and down the stairs, stand up faster from a chair. You can move faster. You do not have to move slow for the rest of your life. But I do understand that if you're in pain, then moving slow is feels better and makes you feel more confident. So how to walk faster. So you need one thing. When you're trying to walk faster, you not only need strength to propel you forward, um, but you also need speed. And strength plus speed is known as power, muscle power. And you train muscle power by moving a little bit faster. So for example, if you are standing up from a chair, to make it more of a powerful exercise or a powerful movement, Try to stand up fast, adding in that degree of speed, trying to do things a little bit more quickly can start to address that power. This is where exercises like kettlebell swings, exercises like 
a thruster, if you're familiar with that, where you stand, you go into a squat, and then you stand up and then press weights overhead. These common movements elicit more of a power response. Now, this is not saying that every exercise you do, if you add speed to it, it's going to elicit power. There are some movements that are meant to be done a little bit slower. But power can also be done in a walking sense. So if we take side to side walking for or side to side stepping, for example, if you follow me, you know that sideways and backwards walking is very important when it comes to just finding pain relief. But if you do that a little bit quicker, so if you take a side to side stepping, obviously making sure you can do it slower first without pain, but starting to just add a little bit of speed. And this isn't going as quickly, you know, as somebody else may be. It's what feels fast to you. So using your own personal experience with your own body, knowing what you can accomplish, and just try to go a little faster. And you can do this with all sorts of different movements. But if you already know movements that feel good to you, so say maybe sideways and backwards feel good to you, see if you can just increase the pace just a little bit. And that can start to help you translate that into walking a little bit faster. The same person also had asked about downhill walking, which this is a very common one that can cause pain, especially knee pain, um, when you're walking down the stairs or going down a hill, because you essentially need the exact opposite. So power moving quickly helps you go up the stairs, helps you go up a hill. Coming down, you need control. So you need that slow, steady control. So. Taking these two things and combining like, okay, how can we walk faster, but then also get better at downhill walking or going down the stairs? This can easily be done in certain movements. So if you take, for example, the um, squat that we were just talking about. So if you sit down slow, that's where that control comes in. So if you feel like you're plopping down, we're missing a little bit of that control and stairs may be difficult for you, especially going down working on that control so you can start at a higher surface if you're hold on my computer's about to die so you can start at a higher surface so you probably don't want to start on like a lower surface starting out just because it's going to be hard and if we have that plop we're not necessarily getting that control that we need so you can start on a higher surface so if you sit down slow stand up fast sit down slow and stand up fast. You can do kind of the same thing with a step up, for example. You can put one foot on top of a step and push yourself up quickly and then kind of lower yourself back down slowly. There are all sorts of different modifications. These are just a few examples, but thinking about both control and then adding in a little bit of that power because just doing Say, I like to use squats just because it's an easy example, but say you're doing squats just standing up and down and you've been doing those for a long time and they feel okay. They may not get you to where you need to be if we're not adding in these two other variables, starting to add in a little bit of that control, add in a little bit of that speed. Of course, make sure you can do it without these variables first, and then you can start to make things a little harder. This is how you can start to progress things, especially if you feel like you're hitting a plateau in your training, in your exercising, like I exercise every day, but these things are still hard. Think about how you can change and add in control, how you can add in 
power. And of course, the Arthritis Adventure Blueprint walks you through how to do these things, gives you the right exercises, and then you can take those movements and start to add in some power and some control. Okay, now, number two. I actually want to kind of on this same topic, um, I had someone ask about they have a trip coming up in a few months, which I love that it's a few months away and not, oh, I have a trip coming up in two weeks because that's important. You can make a lot more gains when you have more time. So don't start preparing for something, you know, just one or two weeks away. It's so much easier if you have a little bit more time. Anyways, she has a trip coming up in five months and she wants to figure out a way that she can handle or prepare her joints for walking longer distances. And this is one thing that does kind of tend to limit the amount of travel someone typically does with osteoarthritis because walking can be a very important part of travel that you have to be able to do, especially in airports and especially, I think she's going abroad, so especially going abroad, there's lots of walking involved and you can get better at it. So it kind of goes in the same aspect of you need something else in your training. So once you can build strength and once you can, you know, all that is great for pain control and just to increase your tolerance. But one thing you have to think about, so I know this can be kind of hard to predict, but if you know maybe a distance of how much you're going to, either how much you want to be able to walk or how much you're going to be walking. So obviously this is easier if you're, you know, you know you're going to be doing a three mile walk for a, a race with your family or doing a 5k but walking or something like that where you have a specific distance. But if we just kind of think about, you can kind of estimate this, I don't know, three, five miles. Or if you just want to be able to walk one mile or around the block, whatever this is, you want to take that distance. And you want to kind of think about one, how long that typically takes. So usually it's about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how well you walk to walk a mile. And if you think about, so if you say you want to walk three miles, and if we think that's maybe about an hour and a half of consistent walking on the little bit higher end. Anyways, and if you're only exercising for say 10 or 15 minutes a day, or maybe you are only walking, but usually you're walking your dog just around the block. Obviously you see a discrepancy there that if we are only kind of moving around and being deliberate with exercise or walking a certain distance that maybe takes us, I don't know, 20 minutes to do. And then we want to ask our body to work for an hour and a half. There can be a discrepancy there. So one of the things that I recommend is starting to explore some longer workouts. 10 to 15 minutes is great, especially when getting started. But if you have a goal of being able to do something for a longer time or especially walking, you have to push that a little bit. You have to challenge that. Now, again, starting there is great and I highly recommend that. But I have a couple um, example YouTube videos that go for about 45 minutes. 30 to 45 minutes, but it's kind of that constant movement. And obviously you can pause whatever you need to, but I have some cardio workouts that are a little bit longer that I recommend for people who are starting to train for travel or train to walk a longer distance. Start thinking about how you can increase the time. 
And I get time can be a little short sometimes, and that's fine. That 10 to 15 minutes is better than nothing. But taking maybe one to two days out of the week to start upping maybe up by 10 minutes to start, up by 20 minutes. And inside the Arthritis Adventure Blueprint, those workouts it contains 12 follow along workouts and those can vary in time as well. And so some push you to about that 40 minute mark. Others are only 15 to 20 minutes. Having that variable of time helps to get your joint used to exercising for a longer period of time. So you cannot continue the same routine that you're doing if that's not getting you anywhere right now bump up that 10 to 15 minutes. Obviously there are a lot of other things to consider with this, making sure it's the right exercise, making sure it doesn't flare up your pain, making sure your joints can tolerate it, which is why it's a gradual increase. And which is why a lot of times if you are exercising 10, 15 minutes a day, walking, you know, a quarter mile or whatever it is, then all of a sudden you go zero to a hundred and now are walking because you want to go to Disneyland or walking because you are going through a museum with your family or whatever it is. That's why a lot of times you have pain after that. Maybe it sends you into a flare up. Maybe you have swelling. That is your body saying, Hey, we just did way more than we typically do. So that is your clue that we need to modify or we need to start training for this. So it's kind of going along the same lines of if you want to walk faster, if you want to walk downhill, and if you want to walk longer distance, you have to add in different variables to your training, whether that's moving a little faster, whether that's moving a little slower and working on that control, or it's moving for a little longer. These variables can help you to get your body used to or get your body ready for whatever goal it is you're trying to accomplish. It's possible. I promise. We just have to work around and modify different things, find movements, find strength, find balance. All those things are important. Okay, now on another kind of completely <laughs> um, different side note, I want to talk a little bit about bone spurs. Um, bone spurs are common with osteoarthritis. And a lot of times they are, are also called an osteophyte. Osteo, O-S-T-E-O, P-H-Y-T-E. So you may see these on x-rays and things that people type in the you know, comments below or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> what this is, is it's kind of a bony outgrowth in your joint. And what happens is there are some cells that trigger other cells that are responsible for kind of building this bone. It builds, builds, builds this bone, and then it puts some cartilage over it, which you're like, oh, cartilage, that's got to be good. Well, it's not particularly as strong or as effective as the cartilage that we are like born with and the cartilage that's between your joints. So it's not always helpful. But what these bone spurs can do is in these little parts of um, your joint where you have these bony outgrowths, it can impact your range of motion. It can impact some muscle strength, depending on where it is, because it can kind of interact with some nerves. Um, it can also start to kind of 
the nerves can start to form around it and it can start to actually have some feelings. So that's when you might notice pain, but actually they're not always painful. I know that it's like, oh, it's a foreign body in my joint. That's gotta be painful. But there's actually a lot of conflicting research in that area. Some say it's correlated with pain and it's correlated with severity. Others say mm, it's not really correlated with pain, that osteophytes are presence of bone spurs don't typically increase the severity of pain. Now, there are a lot of variables that go into that, what joint it affects, because it can really be, it can be in the foot, it can be in the ankle, it can be in the knee, it can be in the hip, and it can actually be in the spine too. Now, they're important to identify just to make sure that they're not rubbing on different joints. They could explain some maybe rather uh, weird symptoms or like weird feelings that you have. Um, so with bone spurs, it's a little challenging just because there's not a ton of research out there, especially on the treatment aspect of things. A lot of times they can just be managed conservatively. A lot of times they don't necessarily impact function severely or significantly. So sometimes you can have a bone spur and be totally fine. You may notice that some movements maybe are a little harder you may notice that some ranges of motion tend to be maybe painful perhaps, or just difficult to get in. So maybe if it's in your hip, it's a deep squat that you start to feel that resistance, or maybe you start to feel a little bit of that pain, depending on if it's near a nerve, et cetera. But there wasn't actually an interesting study that I wanted to share with you um, about walking and physical activity and bone spurs. And what they found was that moderate activity, so this is talking about, and they primarily just tested walking, moderate activity levels, and this was measured at 7,500 to 99,999 steps. So not 10,000, one step below that, that if you were in that range of steps, that it could actually be protective against increasing the severity, increasing the growth, increasing the size of osteophytes that were detected on an MRI. So moderate activity can actually be helpful. Granted, this is one study and definitely it depends on, like I said, where it is, the severity of it, how it's impacting you, but it's promising to see that some movement can be helpful. Some of the other treatments that were listed across various different research studies were um, some NSAIDs, so some anti-inflammatories. There was also a medication that was um, listed that also is used for osteoporosis. But a lot of these are meant to prevent the progression of it. So there's not particularly anything in the research that says, hey, this gets rid of it other than surgery. But surgery also has very mixed um, research on if surgery works, if it, or if it improves the range of motion and the mobility in the joint, if this osteophyte or bone spur is gone. And it very highly depended on the joint itself. So it was actually found that in ankles, if you had a bone spur in your ankle and you had it removed, almost 84% of people saw that bone spur or felt that bone spur come back. So it recurred. 
And that's when it can be a little difficult to see, you know, is surgery effective? Should you go through a surgery? And this is obviously something to talk to your doctor about. So if they do mention a bone spur, you can always ask, you know, are there any conservative measures for this? Are there any um, movements that may be helpful? What are the options maybe other than surgery for something like this? Now, there are people that live with these and have no issues. There are people that live with these and do have some pain and some other symptoms. But one of the best things to do is to stay active. If you can kind of normalize the way that your joint is moving, because a lot of times these can happen if you are as a compensation or if your body is kind of biomechanically, like the way you move, um, trying to make up for something or trying to give your joint a little bit more stability. Some of the research has shown that's why they're shown. So you want to know what else can give you stability? Muscle. But if you have muscle that does not necessarily prevent you from getting a bone spur. And if you have a bone spur, it doesn't necessarily mean that you failed or that you don't have as you're not moving as well. Um, there are a lot of causes of these and it's very, very complicated. But one of the best things to do, and I think I just did a podcast with Susan Niebergall that I'm going to be posting next week um, about bone spurs because she does have a bone spur in her hip. And she finds that with certain movements, like especially a deep squat, squatting like below parallel um, with heavy weight that she notices the pain or she notices kind of that restriction in that movement in that bone spur that she's been identified to have. So she knows not to deep squat. And you don't necessarily need to do like a squat below parallel, like a squat lower than like a typical chair. So she does box squats or she squats to a box about chair height and modifies that way. So I think it's definitely worth noting which movements maybe you tend to notice that something doesn't feel right. Or maybe if your bone spur, I guess, elicits like a sharp pain. When do you notice that sharp pain? Is it only during certain movements? If we can start to tie it to those, then that can be really helpful in determining when that bone spur is irritated, what movements irritate it. So then you can try to avoid those movements as best as you can, and then reduce the severity of your symptoms. I know that's not like a answer that everyone's probably looking for of dealing with bone spurs and things, but I want you to know that they're not necessarily always serious. They don't necessarily always cause pain and they don't necessarily always get worse. It really depends on a lot of factors, but if you can just stay active, if you can stay strong, that's the big one, strong, um, then I think that it's going to be really important as far as management of the bone spur. But if you've been told you have one, I want you to ask for your options. Some um, injections can be helpful. The research is also kind of out on that too. So helpful for some, helpful, not helpful for others, but cortisone injections are never really um, recommended to get repeated times. So keep that in mind too. I have lots of information on cortisone shots and things on my YouTube channel if you want more about that. Last one. So I get this a lot and um, about all the tips that I share, all the exercises I share, all the things about food and all that. Does this apply to rheumatoid arthritis? And the answer is 
probably. So this really depends on how rheumatoid arthritis affects you personally, how activity affects you personally, what symptoms you're noticing with your rheumatoid arthritis, because osteoarthritis is particularly characterized by joint pain and stiffness primarily. That is what all of the information I share, all of the exercises and things that I share are meant to address joint pain and joint stiffness. And a lot of that has to do with balance, has to do with strength, has to do with range of motion and mobility, which absolutely can be beneficial for people that have a rheumatoid arthritis because you need strength, you need balance, you need that muscle support in your joints to help take some stress away. Now, rheumatoid arthritis also has a couple of other symptoms that you have to keep in mind as far as flare-ups may be a little bit different as far as what triggers them. Your activity tolerance may be a little bit different depending on what you can tolerate. And a lot of this is similar to osteoarthritis. I mean, it definitely depends personally on what you can do. So it's all about understanding your symptoms, understanding where you need to start, but in your situation as well, muscle strength, balance, aerobic training, all of these things are going to be helpful. It's just knowing your symptoms, knowing how your body responds, that's going to be the most important. So yes, they can absolutely be important for rheumatoid arthritis. But you just have to take into mind some of these other considerations since it is more of an autoimmune condition and there are some underlying symptoms like fatigue and fever and all of those sorts of things that you can notice um, that do differ from osteoarthritis. So I hope that this was helpful and that is all the time that we have for questions today. But I will be back for these question and answers. So keep a lookout. So make sure you're following me on Instagram. And if you're inside my private Facebook group, those are both housing the opportunities to ask your questions with comments and DMs. I get a lot that it can be hard to keep up with. So if you've messaged me, if you've sent me a um, comment, I always try to do my best to get back to those. Same with email. So these are the best way to get some of your questions answered in the time that we have. So keep following, keep taking action. And if you wanna know more about the Arthritis Adventure Blueprint, the step-by-step -step process to help you find osteoarthritis pain relief, then you just need to go to www.arthritisadventure.com. So I will see you in there. I hope this was helpful and thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to the Adventuring with Osteoarthritis podcast. If this podcast has brought you hope and inspiration, make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Also, if you're looking for more information on how to start your own arthritis adventure, head to www.keeptheadventurealive.com or follow me on YouTube by searching Alyssa Arthritis Adventure. That's A-L-Y-S-S-A. -S 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 -